You're listening to the sermon podcast of Galveston Bible Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit galvestonbible.org. But mostly, from wherever you're listening, we hope that the Lord ministers to you through this week's message. Tim said this is the third installment of our continuing sermon on unwrapping the gift of Jesus. Levin introduced us to the joy of the little girl who received the great big package, the gift of her father coming home uh, from overseas on the holidays, and how the gospel has been a cause of great joy ever since it was proclaimed to the shepherds uh, by the angels, and it will be throughout eternity. Last week, Tim reminded us of our hope in Jesus, the Messiah, and that one day we will no longer have hope because we will have the reality and the fulfillment of our hope of salvation and eternal life in God. Today we'll think about another aspect of unwrapping the gift of Jesus, and that is love. When we talk about love and the gift of Jesus, we're drawn to one well-known verse in particular, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God so loved that he gave. There's a hymn titled The Love of God written by Frederick Lehman. Uh, about a hundred years ago. The third verse is anonymous, but it says this. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stock on earth a quill, and every man a a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. I don't personally consider that hyperbole. I think we may be unwrapping the gift of God's love throughout eternity. So let's pray together that the Holy Spirit will give us a glimpse of God's love today through his word. Father, we do thank you for the gift that you've given us of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that that you gift cost you more than we can know. And that you gave it because of your love for us to meet the need that we had to have a relationship with you. We pray that as we look into your word today, you would help us to see the reality of your love toward us and your love in us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Love is an important theme in scripture. The word love or a form of it appears over 700 times in the Bible. Today in unwrapping the gift of Jesus, we will look at God's love toward us and God's love in us. God's love toward us and God's love in us. As we get started, I think we may need to define what love is. And this might be a little controversial, but I hope you see it as we get into the scripture. Godly love is not primarily a feeling. It's not affection, it's not an emotion. 
What we love certainly affects our emotions and our feelings, but those feelings alone are not love. Godly love is a commitment to give to meet the needs of another regardless of the cost. Love is giving to meet the needs of another. And we'll see that as we look at the scripture today. Usually when we think of love, or the world thinks of love, we think of a a feeling of affection towards someone, or an emotional attachment, or even our own needs and desires, because uh, the world, especially the entertainment media, is famous for confusing love and lust, and uh, trying to switch the two. But why is the world's definition of love different than godly love that we'll see in Scripture today? Why is the world's definition different? It's different because it's self-centered. Selfishness is the essence of our sin nature. And the world's definition of love focuses on my feelings, my emotions, my needs and desires... In fact, the opposite of godly love is not hate, it's selfishness. So let's get into the scripture and see if I'm telling you the truth. Uh, If you didn't bring your Bible or you don't have one on your device, there may be one under a chair close to you. Let's look first of all at the verse that we read earlier uh, in John chapter 3 and verse 16, if you'd like to turn there. John 3.16, a very familiar verse to most Christians. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So what characterizes God's love toward us? What's it about? Well, let's think first, what does it mean that God gave his son that whosoever believes in him should not perish? Because today we see teachers in the progressive Christianity movement saying that the idea that God would punish his son for us is just ludicrous. That would be cosmic child abuse, they say. They don't believe at all that God would do that. But what does the scripture say? Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from the present evil world according to the will of God our Father, Galatians chapter 1. And walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor, Ephesians chapter 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, 1 Timothy chapter 2 who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people 
zealous of good works. Titus chapter 2. So what is the common theme here? Jesus gave himself. God gave Jesus to ransom us. To pay for our sins. We can see this in the Old Testament as well. Uh, Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 53. The prophecy of Isaiah chapter 53. We'll read verses 4 through 6 and then 10 and 11. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgression, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then verse 10, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief, when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. If God could just pat us on the head and say, It's okay, nobody's perfect. I'll I'll just overlook your sin. If he could do that, he would not be just. He would not be righteous, and he would not be holy. And we would not want him as a God, or a judge, or anyone else. God is righteous. He has to punish sin. And he punished sin in the person of Jesus Christ for us, because of his love for us. In fact... In Romans chapter 3 and verse 26, Paul says that God actually declared his righteousness by being both just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Because of what Jesus did on our behalf, he declared his righteousness. So to answer the question we asked a few minutes ago, what characterizes God's love toward us, it is sacrificial giving. God sacrificed Jesus. He placed our sin on Jesus and poured out his wrath on Jesus so that he could give us the righteousness of Jesus. We have no idea of what it costs the eternal, infinite, triune God to do this. As Jesus hung on the cross and God the Father forsook him for those hours of darkness. Jesus suffered the punishment that all of us, that every redeemed person who has lived, who ever will live, would have suffered in hell for eternity. God's love is not merely a feeling. It is a commitment to meet our greatest need regardless of the cost. 
So we've looked briefly at God's love toward us and what it caused him to do. What about God's love in us? When we're born again, God puts his love in us. How does this happen and what does it look like? Well, let's go back to John chapter 3. We'll look a little bit earlier in the passage. Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee and a religious ruler or leader of the Jews at the time, had come to Jesus by night, that kind of implies secretly, to ask him about who he was. He says, we know you're a teacher from God because of these miracles that you're doing. But he didn't know exactly what, was, what, was, what Jesus was or who he was. He wants Jesus to explain who he is. And Jesus does that. And we'll start reading in verse 3. Jesus kind of skips who he is and he goes to how to be born again. How to be included in God's kingdom. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell where it cometh, or whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Then skipping down to verse 14, Jesus explains how they can be. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, Nicodemus, being a religious leader, would have known exactly what Jesus was talking about here. I think we probably need to go back and read the story. In Numbers chapter 21, if you want to turn with me there, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Numbers chapter 21, the nation of Israel has come out of Egypt. They're wandering in the desert and complaining, as they almost always did. We shouldn't fault them, though, because we often do that as well. In chapter 21 of Numbers, verses 4 through 9, it says, And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom, and the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. And the people spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have you brought, up, brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water. And our soul loatheth this light bread, the manna that God had given them to eat. They were tired of that. 
And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for that we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, he shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass, and put it up upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Why did Jesus use this illustration? Jesus is using this illustration to explain to Nicodemus how to be born again. Jesus will be shortly lifted up on a pole, a Roman cross. And whoever looks to him in faith will not perish under God's wrath, but will have eternal life in God. That's Jesus' explanation of how we are born spiritually, and that's how God puts the gift of love in us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. When the Apostle Paul listed the fruit of the Spirit in his letter to the Galatians in chapter 5, verse 22, contrasting the works of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit, the first fruit aspect of the fruit of the Spirit in the list is love. So God not only showed, showed love toward us by giving the gift of Jesus to pay for our sins, but he gives us the gift of his love in us when we're born again, when we enter his kingdom and are saved from his wrath. We have the Holy Spirit residing within us. The Holy Spirit, being God, has the character of God. So God's love is in us. And what are we to do with the gift of God's love in us? Well, we're commanded to love God, to love our neighbor, to love one another, to love all men, and even to love our enemies. According to Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? Turn with me to Mark chapter 12. The Pharisees are trying to trick Jesus, as they often did, so that he would lose his popularity with the people. In Mark chapter 12, we'll start in verse 28. And one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, and perceived that he had answered them well, asked him, Which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these.
So when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He didn't go to the Ten Commandments, which I think they probably expected him to do. He gave to the overall, he went to the overall commandment that was given to Israel to love God and to love their neighbor. And Jesus, on the night he was taken to be crucified, where it's recorded in John chapter 13, he said, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. And then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12, says, And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. So we're to love others. In fact, we're even to love our enemies. Let's look at Matthew chapter 5. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is unwrapping uh, the gift here in his teaching. In Matthew chapter 5. And verse 43, we'll start with verse 43. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good. And sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if you salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. So Jesus instructed his followers to even love their enemies. And this is another reason that I say godly love is not first and foremost an emotion or a feeling because you can't command someone to feel a certain way or to have a certain emotion, but you can command them to behave and act in a certain way. And that's what Jesus is doing here. You notice specifically he said when he talks about his neighbors, I mean his enemies, that we should pray for them and do good to them and bless them. So those are all actions. And the thing is that if we obey God, if I obey God and act lovingly towards someone, then often the feeling will follow. If I'm acting in a loving way towards someone, then I will begin to feel an affection for them, a love for them. I will feel God's love for them if I'm acting in the way that God wants me to act toward them. But it's not primarily and foremost a feeling. John in his first letter in chapter 4, verse 20, says, If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. 
For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. So since we're commanded to love God, and since we're commanded to love others, what does that look like in our lives? What does that mean for us? Well, we have a brief description in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 where Paul tells us what love is and what it's not. He says in verses 4 through 8 that love is patient, and that word means slow to boil over, that love bears all things, which means it covers with silence rather than broadcasting faults. It's kind, and that's useful in a benevolent way. Love believes all things, which means it has faith in the object of its love. Hopes all things. Love has an expectant trust in the object of love. Love endures all things. It doesn't give up. Love never ends, which means it never falls or fails. So those are the characteristics of love. And if we are acting in a loving way toward our brothers, that's what our actions in our lives will look like. What love is not, Paul goes on to say, it's not envious, it's not boastful, it's not arrogant, it's not rude, it's not insisting on its own way, it doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. And what, are all those, what do we see in common with all those things? Those are all selfish actions. Envious, boastful, arrogant, rude. All selfishness from our old nature. Even the Ten Commandments, if we look at them, they oppose and expose our selfish, sinful nature. Don't dishonor your parents. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't witness falsely. Don't covet these things are all expressions of our, our natural sin, our selfishness that's within us. So toward others, love is the opposite of selfishness. It's giving to meet the needs of another. So what about expressing love toward God? Does that break my definition of love? Because God doesn't need anything. God is self-sufficient self-existent. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need anything. Uh, So how can we show love toward God? Well, I think there are at least two ways that I thought of. First, though God doesn't have any needs, he has oughts. O-U-G-H-T. Ought. There are things that we owe God simply because he is God such as reverence, obedience, worship, thanksgiving, and praise. And by giving God what we owe him, we exercise love toward God. Second, God has desires that he wants for our good. And while we know that ultimately God is going to accomplish his will, regardless of anyone else. At the same time, we have responsibilities and choices that carry consequences for us. 
And this is why the New Testament is full of commands instructing us on how to conduct ourselves. There'd be no need for the Apostle Paul to spend three chapters telling us what to do in a letter if it was automatic. We have choices to make, and those choices have consequences. Paul tells the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 4, Walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring, that means being quick, to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. How we conduct our lives, whether we walk worthy of our calling in God, has consequences. Let's turn together to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. The Corinthians church had a big problem with division, if you remember right. They were saying... I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. They all had factions that they were following. Uh, and Paul here in teaching that Christ is the only foundation, he says in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians and verse 13, Every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. So God wants us to conduct ourselves in a way that is worthy of the calling that he has called us with and in line with the gift of salvation that he has given us. And if we do that, we are showing love toward God. We are returning his love that he sacrificed so that we could have the salvation that we have. But it's a choice that we make. As it says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable God, which is your reasonable service. In doing that, we can show our love toward God. God doesn't need us in the strict sense, but we can bless God by worshiping him, obeying him, and walking with him in a way that honors him. So to summarize, we've tried to unwrap the gift of Jesus a little further today by looking at God's love toward us and God's love in us. Godly love is not first and foremost a feeling. It is a commitment to give to meet the needs of another. God expressed his love toward us by giving us the gift of Jesus, by sacrificing him for our sins. So that if we look to Jesus, we will not perish but have eternal life. That is God modeling love. 
When we were born again spiritually, saved from the wrath of God and included in the kingdom of God, we became new creatures. God put his love in us, in the person of the Holy Spirit. The opposite of love is not hate, but selfishness, which is the essence of our sin nature. As new creatures, God commands us to love our neighbor, to love one another, to love all men, to love our enemies, by giving ourselves to meet their needs. When we do this, feelings of love will often follow our actions. God commands us to love him. We do this by giving God what he is owed as God. Reverence, obedience, worship, thanksgiving, and praise. And by walking worthy of the vocation to which he has called us. So praise God together with me for his love. Father, we thank you and praise you for the gift of Jesus and the gift of love that you've given us. Lord, we thank you that you will be glorified throughout all eternity by the gospel because you've displayed both your justice and your mercy, both your righteousness and your love for all the universe to see, for all of your creatures. We pray that you would continue to magnify your name in our lives that we would reflect your love, that we would love others as you've commanded us to do, not being self-centered, but willing to give to meet the needs of others. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.